Friends, we're going to yeah. get started. We have our friend here to pray for us, so let's join together. <laughs> our dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this beautiful day that you have created for us, and we're thankful for this opportunity to be together to learn more of you. And ask that you bless us during this time and be with our teacher that he went able to convey his message to us that we can understand and that we can move out beyond this class. Thank you for this time and for this day. In your name we pray. Amen. Okay, thank you. So we have to... Well, maybe I'm not on. I don't turn it on until the last minute in case something inadvertent comes out of my mouth. Okay, uh, good morning. Today we're at the last class of a course that is titled From Brat to Beatific. The stated title, uh, for, well, I don't have it, I have it on the other side, for today's class is Maturity. And so we are going to turn back to Philippians 3 and we're going to finish what we got started last week because today we're going to see um, truly an apostolic definition I think you could dial it back just one, it seems just a little bit of an echo in it. Um, <clears throat> is that better? Does it sound a little bit more natural? Yeah. Today you're going to learn the definition of, of true maturity, or at least one definition, but one that I think is very consistent with the rest of the apostles. You're going to learn uh, what it is to progress into that maturity and how to know that you're doing so. And this will all be taken from Philippians 3. But before we do that, um, I want to try to do a little um, cross-discipline stuff with you today. Since this is the last class, and since many of you have been here and been learning and listening, I wonder if we could take a little, not a, quite an oral exam, but a little uh, correlation, if we could see, if we can understand some things that Abraham Lincoln was talking about, which I think he derived from the New Testament. At least he's alluding to it. Let's see if we can take some of Lincoln's thoughts and see how they relate to the New Testament, okay? How, by the way, how, who has seen the movie? Only Lincoln, the most recent one. What do you mean, which movie? <clears throat> no, James Bond. No, Lincoln. How many of you? Only a few, right? Um, I, I, I'm not going to urge you to see it, but I saw it and was quite inspired by it again engaging with our 16th president. So I was thinking about it. I got this book, Great Speeches by Abraham Lincoln. I was cruising through a number of them. And I want to point out some things that he said in two of his most famous speeches, one from the Gettysburg Address and the other from his talk at the Cooper Institute in February of 1860 when he was still actually campaigning for the presidency in which he definitively lays out his thoughts on what should be done with regard to the slave issue. And uh, a couple of phrases that he uses are very pertinent to the course that we are now studying. So uh, this morning when I was writing this all up, there was a, there is a person in this room who in eighth grade memorized the Gettysburg Address and while I was writing this all out, stood next to me and recited it to me. So that was a good thing. How many of you can still do that from eighth grade? How many of you can do the first sentence? 
Not in the, no, that's not in, that's the Declaration of Independence. <laughs> uh, that's in the middle of the speech. How does he start it? What's the first line? Four score. Our forefathers brought forth on this continent a new nation. Conceived. Conceived in liberty. And dedicated to the proposition that what? That all and we have to amend it, all humans are created equal, right? He meant, he meant human, but we have to assert it in our day and age. All humans are, so this is the only nation probably in the history of the world that's been uh, based upon not uh, ethnicity or even uh, primarily locality, but brought forth dedicated to an idea. We are a nation of an idea, and that, f that core idea is what? That all humans are, created equal. And so the nation was conceived in that spirit. Now later on in the talk, at the end, at the climax, um, he says that this nation, he puts forth a hope, and this nation is referring back to that when it was a new nation. Now he's talking to the nation as it is at that time. This nation, he hopes can have, now he amends his language a little bit. The first nation was brought forth, he says, by our forefathers. This new nation, he says, needs to be brought forth, how? Under God, into, and what's the language that he uses? A new birth of freedom. Now, where did he get that concept? That something could be conceived. Yes, he did. And you know, and he said, George said Nicodemus, absolutely, he took this right out of the New Testament. So now, if you try to relate this to the course that you just took, when I took you through all of the uh, notions of the apostles from how we start all the way to the conclusion, conception, what does the New Testament say about that? And what kind of life is it talking about? What's the Greek word? Ah, uh, no, that's this one. This one. The new birth would be Zoe. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. It was my mistake. My mistake. And this one would be what? Bios. Because this was the original conception of our country. Now, I'm not saying that, you know, this is a strict formula. Don't, I'm not saying Lincoln had all this in his mind. But I am say, saying that he absolutely took this notion that a country could experience something like analogically a new birth like the New Testament says it's possible for a human. Yes, he is doing that. And then I started studying the speech more carefully and I went back up there and I says, look, he's so logical. He starts out how the country was conceived. How did it get started? It was brought back forth by a bunch of men and it was dedicated to a proposition, but something happened that caused this nation to have to have a new birth. What's wrong with this one? Go ahead. They were probably more biblically literate than we are. Yes. So, so this kind of language would just be 
flow in seamlessly into their consciousness and they'd get it. We don't because we're biblically illiterate. But what happened from the new nation conceived, dedicated to a proposition, all people are equal and it, it changed the world to this point where this nation under God needs a new birth of freedom. What happened? Uh, we're in the midst of a war at that time that's threatening whether that nation, or as he puts it, any nation so conceived can long endure. That's what the test was. That's what the war was. So there's a great war. What's the war about? Slavery. It's about slavery. It's not about states' rights. That's Lincoln's shows in the Cooper Institute. It is not about states' rights. He demolishes that argument to smithereens. It's about the fact that some people want to hold slaves. And they're using states' rights as a cover, which he then demonstrates in the Cooper Institute talk that the forefathers that conceived the nation, they wanted slavery to wither and die. And he proves it in the Cooper Institute talk. He shows how they voted and how they uh, blocked slavery from going into Oregon and how they didn't want it to spread anywhere else and how they eventually thought it was just gonna die. But what happened? It didn't wither and die. The forefathers wanted it to, but it didn't. So now, Lincoln looks at this whole mess and says, what do we need in our country? We need to be born again. And he hopes that we will and flower into the fullness of what he considered the forefather's vision was, which would be what? For, on a political level, all humans recognized as equal. Now, I don't know what you think about that, but I'm pretty excited about it. Now, Cooper Institute, he in this brilliant, uh, has anybody ever read it, the, the Cooper Institute talk? If you wanna just read somebody whose mind is like a scalpel and who can do politics and legal reasoning and logic and history and do it in a way that is just, it's like crystalline clear. You can't avoid his conclusions. You should read it. Now, he makes the case in here that when the framers of the, of the Constitution were deliberating the issue of slavery, they also at the, ha at the same time had to deliberate this notion of whether it was gonna be allowed in Oregon. That was the Northwest Prohibition. And the, f the framers of our Constitution blocked that. They voted against it. They stopped it from happening. They said, no, you're not gonna export slavery to Oregon. So Lincoln uses that argument to say that when they were wrestling with all of this stuff, and they had this huge mess on their hand, he said that while they were making progress toward maturity, that's the phrase he uses, that when they were wrestling with all of this, what are we gonna do about the slavery? We can't uh, succeed from Great Britain unless we have the South with us. We have to carry that slavery bag with us. We can't get rid of it just by fiat, but the framers, Lincoln argues, realized that they were in this progression towards maturity. The question is, in Lincoln's mind, what was the maturity that the United States was supposed to arrive at in the, if you really strictly read the Constitution according to the vision that they put forward and the way they voted against the Oregon uh, extension of slavery, he comes to the conclusion as they stumbled and progressed towards maturity, what would maturity be? Yes. And, and, and that would be what? Yeah, and what would that mean? Oh, like, what would? It would be. It would mean that slavery would be, of course, 
evaporated because it would be shown to be adolescent. Do you remember that stage when we studied the New Testament? Adolescence? What is adolescence? Do you remember what we studied? That period of life when what? You've got all the ideals in the world and you want to change the world and then what? You turn around and do something absolutely contrary to what your stated ideals are. You're in this conflict discovering who you are as a person. You can be brilliant and you can be awful. You, you agreed with me. You told me you raised teenagers. You all said three or four weeks ago that you, this was true. So I'm like looking at all this stuff and I'm thinking, you know, you know Lincoln was so awesome. He, he, he realized that uh, you could go back and beat up the forefathers like a lot of people do and say, why didn't you just ban slavery all at once? Why didn't you just right from the beginning uh, say that it could not be part of the United States Constitution, that it was uh, incompatible with the United States? Why didn't they do that? There you go. They had to do a political compromise to get done what they felt they had to get done in the time that they had to get to do it. And then they said, we'll, we'll frame it up in such a way that inevitably slavery will what? Just wither away. Except what? Adolescence was prolonged. You know, they were hoping for a rather swift rise into maturity. And heretofore, at that time, it has now lasted 87 years of complete incongruity. You've got a constitution dedicated to the proposition that all people are created equal, and you've got four million of them being treated like slaves. It's incompatible. It's adolescent. So Lincoln is calling us here to make progress towards maturity as a nation. Now, maybe that helps you. I don't know. If you try to start thinking about uh, New Testament theology on a macro level. I'm not making a strict one-to-one. -one. I don't think a whole collective nation can be literally, supernaturally, spiritually born again. I'm not saying that Lincoln is saying that. I'm saying that our country is sort of like a microcosm of what? If you think about it, it's, it's, a, it's a microcosm of the Christian life. We start off, we're conceived by our parents, we find out later on that we need what? We need a new birth. We need Zoe. We need life from Christ. That what we inherited from our forefathers is not enough. We need something additional. We need something supernatural. And then once that supernatural life comes into our lives, the whole New Testament is then urging us to what? Progress toward maturity. And as we make this progression to maturity, now we know what Lincoln defined maturity was, uh, as. What was it? What was maturity in his time and place, politically? Grow up and do what? Grow up, America, and do what? Have a new birth of freedom and let the Constitution as it was originally intended to be actually be the law. And then our country will blossom into a new birth of freedom. And that correlates to each one of us because we are conceived by our parents. We, if we accept Jesus, we are given Zoe and come to have a new kinds of spiritual life. And then we start that new life and we find out 
as we cho choose to live it, as we try to live it, that we find out frequently that there is what going on inside of each one of us. What was going on inside of the United States of America at that point, according to Abraham Lincoln? Why was there turmoil? Because you say you believe one thing, and then you have turned around and done the very opposite of what your whole enterprise is dedicated to. That's a major, major conflict. And this is, this is the thing that most Christians discover as they seriously try to live the Christian life. We agree with all of the propositions and the idealisms and the, and the beautiful things of the theology, but then when the New Testament starts really calling us towards maturity, which is, well, if it was to, to live up to the propositions inherent to the Constitution, if that's what Lincoln defined maturity would be, then what do you think a spiritual definition of maturity would be? If living up to the propositions in t contained in your constitution is political maturity, then what would spiritual maturity be? Living up to the teachings of Christ. Yeah, l just allowing the teachings of Christ to be, or actually, I want to amend that, not just the teachings, I want allowing Jesus himself inside of us to be who he is along with his teachings. That would be a good definition of spiritual maturity in the New Testament. And so Lincoln notes that just like a nation can make progress towards uh, maturity, it's implied by him that a nation can also do what? If you can make progress to, to political maturity, you can also do what? You can regress. And this notion, you know, as you try to go forward in the Christian life and then you take two steps back and then you struggle forward, and this whole thing, this progression towards maturity in the New Testament is actually defined. It actually tells you what it is. And, you know, it's not an it either. It tells you what the state of maturity centered on Christ is and shows you how to get there. And then we have to make the choice just like Americans did in Lincoln's day. Do we actually want to make progression towards maturity? Or do we want to stay back like America could have stayed in this adolescent phase using all kinds of specious argumentation, sophistical reasoning, uh, false uh, logic, which Lincoln destroys in the Cooper Institute talk and shows why the things that the people that are defending slavery cannot be even conceivably coherent with what the original framers thought. So the question is, when it gets put to each one of us, do we really want to go into that uh, total maturity? Uh, lots of Americans, when they heard Lincoln, progress towards maturity, they defined th what he was saying as what? How did a good swatch of Americans think about his vision of progression towards maturity? Well, what would they call it? <laughs> uh, oh, tyranny, oppression. Crushing the, the rights of the individuals. <clears throat> What's that sound like? You're crushing me with all your rules and regulations. You're, you're, there's too many rules. You're, you're telling me what to do. You're bossing me around. What's that sound like? <laughs> so Papa Lincoln has to, you know, in the Institute talk, he has to lay it down like a good dad does and say, well, here's why, what, given what you believe and what you say, that you are inco incoherent. Your, your position is incoherent. So, that doesn't make you a bad person, that just means you're what? 
you're an adolescent. So here, Papa's going to show you the logic of the thing. And if you really want to make progress, if you really want to go to spiritual maturity, or political maturity in his case, then you will embrace these propositions and it'll just, it'll open up to you. So 170 years later, have we made progress? <clears throat> you mean politically? I, um, I don't know. We, we throw a couple, I don't want to. I don't want to spend. Um, I, first of all, I don't want to make any political statements about our current situation. And number two, um, I don't want to spend a lot of time on it. But I think it would be interesting to look at it. I mean, um, what would Lincoln think, for example, that an African American was president of the United States? What would Lincoln think? Or that a woman, what would he really think? I think Lincoln would say, <laughs> if you've got the props for the job, good for you. If you don't, then no, you shouldn't be in the job. But if you can do it, and if you're human, good for you. What else can you see that Lincoln would th see as progress? Slow and agonizing it has been. What's one of the iconic symbols of the 20th century? video clips that we've seen in our lifetime probably each of us 50 to 100 times. Martin Luther King standing where? In front of the Lincoln Memorial. Asking America to do what? What was the central line from his speech? Live up to the content of your creeds. That's it. Just do what Lincoln said. What year was that? 1963. Uh, uh, 100 years after Lincoln gave this talk. So measured by our human scale, you say, oh, man, that's, if that's progress, whew, that's agonizing slow, especially if you're black. But it's progress. It is progression towards maturity. It really is. And that's one of the things that makes me still excited about being an American, because <laughs> as many screw-ups as we have done, we have the mechanism inside of the Constitution ourselves. We do. The people have the power to live out the ethic of the Constitution, and if we did that, we would make progression toward maturity. Now, you were going to say. Yes. No, it's, it's, thank you for asking that question, because one of the things I wanted to make sure when, in, in, before we turn to Philippians 3 is we need to understand that maturity is a dynamic state. It isn't a static state, which is why a lot of Christians always shy away from it, saying, I've arrived at it, or you know, they, they don't want to even be associated with being called a mature Christian. Because if it gets framed up as, a, as a, a state, a static state, well then, since we're living and we're always changing and we're fallible and we're subject to error and we can go forward and backwards, no one wants to make that claim. But Paul's definition isn't that it's a state. It's more of a dynamic quality of life. It's a more of like a mindset that exists that you can actually identify when it's happening to you. And you can also choose to keep it going, this, this dynamic thing. And you can also choose to halt it. So it's dynamic, it's not static. OK, uh, enough of politics? <laughs> yes, sir. <laughs>
Yes. Of course. Yes, they, we are, hopefully we're making progress towards maturity, and that's what all of the debates actually should be about, right? And everybody's claiming that their path is going to lead to maturity. I understand all that. And so we have legitimate differences of opinion. But in this case, at least on one occasion, I, I think I should just refer you back to the Cooper Institute talk. And you tell me after you get done reading it, does not Abraham Lincoln absolutely destroy the logic behind the position that slavery ought to be continued and tolerated. He does. So I would say that the true progression towards maturity politically is when some spokesperson using blinding logic, scalpel-like reasoning, uh, facts at their disposal that are not contested, and they can make a presentation, a case, a brief, as it were, which I think that the Institute talk is, it resembles a legal brief to the American people. If you can do that and show that this really will progress the nation, then I would say that would be a good starting point for what we all ought to agree on. I, I just, it's, Lincoln's no different than we are. He stood up in an era in which there were a million voices and was able to summon that logic and that history and make the case. And of course, that's what we need in our country today too. Somebody that will summon using logic and reason and the facts and the history and really provide substantial leadership so that we make progress toward maturity, not just cycle forever and ever and ever in these cul-de-sacs of political fighting. Now, if that's what you mean, yes, I think we can do it. But as, in as was in true in Lincoln's day, there were a lot of people that weren't into politics because they actually wanted to advance the nation into maturity. They were into politics, why? For personal gain, and it's, nothing's changed. And so I, I take great hope from this that yes, a human being can stand up if they are informed and prepared and, and really have a true heart, and they can change the course of human history based on the Constitution. That's a hopeful thing. That's a good thing to believe. That's, that's the essence of what it means to be an American because we're dedicated to a proposition. All right, let's move on and go to the New Testament now and talk about Philippians 3. Um, I, want you to I want to start out with chapter 3, verse 9 and 10. And this is Paul's present. And this is just a very quick review. You should have the handout. Uh, and I see that... Yeah, does anyone need a handout for today? Um, I want you to start on Paul's present, 3, 7 through 10, and I want you to look there, and I need a reader. Uh, there's the mic at that table. Somebody boldly grab it and read 3, 9, and 10 for us. Okay. Philippians 3, verses 9 and 10. And be found in him, not having a righteousness of, our, uh, of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. 
I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow to attain to the resurrection from the dead. Now you might remember from last week, we looked at Paul's litany of credentials and what he had been trusting in to make him right with God, all of his religious perfection under the law, and now he realizes that it's not worth anything. So he's kind of speaking in economic terms because he uses this notion of worth and loss and gain and this kind of vocabulary he's using. So he has come to have an exchange. This is the first step to, to spiritual maturity. You can't go into spiritual maturity unless you make this exchange. What did he exchange? He exchanged one thing for another based on this verse. Uh, he took faith, uh, keep going, faith in, he, he, got he gave up his past. Okay, that's, that's absolutely true. He gave up trusting in his past to make him right with God. And in exchange, what did he put his trust or confidence or faith in? Christ. In, now, notice the language. I, I, we can't move off this text until you absolutely see it with total clarity. The righteousness that comes from where? There's righteousness that comes from two sources that he's talking about. One, there is a righteousness that can be uh, stated that comes from the law, and the other righteousness comes from, from, from Christ. Christ alone. So previously, he had been living his law as a Pharisee and had done everything within his power to become designated a righteous person by keeping the laws. There are 613 of them, and he concludes his little uh, review with saying that if you examined me according to the 613 laws of the Torah, I would have been considered faultless. I wasn't breaking any of them. Wow. That's pretty awesome. So... Whatever righteousness there is in the law, he achieved it. Except that he came to a certain place in his life when he realized what? That if he trusted in his own performance to be right with God, it would negate or nullify the work of Jesus on the cross. It would have made Christ irrelevant. If anybody could be saved by their own performance, it makes Christ redundant. And that's what he blatantly says in Galatians 2.21. If righteousness comes by the law, then Christ died in vain for nothing. That is a powerful statement. Christ died for nothing if you can become right with God through keeping the law. But Paul concludes we can't. Does anybody want to argue with him? <laughs> anybody want to put themselves up with Paul and say, uh, I'm faultless according to the standards of God? No, you can't do it. Not in your right mind. So he's made an exchange. Instead of depending on himself to be right with God, he now has chosen to depend on Christ, Christ alone, and the gift, the gift of righteousness. It's not earned. It's not earned. It's given to you. Yes.
Yes, and this is your unique contribution to all things theologically. Somehow God has opened your mind personally to this notion about being versus doing and defining ourselves as human beings by the collection of our actions. That's an, you, you believe that to be an inadequate. It, it doesn't work. It, it's not because it doesn't work because that's not what God created us to be, to be a verb. We're not just supposed to be a verb. Yes, human beings. We're supposed to be a noun, too. We're supposed to be something. Human, out of which we do things. God is, God's name is I am. He is the great being. He has created us in his image. We have a humanity about us that is unique. And what we try to do is turn our relationship with God into a set of doings, which is what Paul was doing. And based on these doings, the great God is going to say to each one of us, what? What a wonderful person you are. And, you know, depending on whoever you talk with, I mean, there's people that actually believe if their score at the end of life is 50.1 uh, positive and 49.9 bad that they're going to get in. I mean, seriously, people believe this. And then there's other people that think, oh, I've done way better than that. I mean, I'm at least a 73. I'm having no problems with God evaluating my life. The New Testament destroys all that. It says that's not the way it's going to be at all. It's going to either be <clears throat> you're going to do everything perfectly according to the law, which is impossible, or you're going to take a gift from God that God gives to you. And that gift comes to us by faith in Jesus Christ and what he did on the cross for us. And when you receive this gift, God then says, I now consider you to be righteous. You don't have to do anything. You just are because I say so because of what Christ did for you. Now, think about what I'm saying. What's that do to your pride when somebody talks to you like that? There's nothing you can do. You've screwed up so badly that it's completely gone. However... I love you, and so I pay your debt, and I declare you to be free from it, and in fact, I declare you to be right in my eyes. There's nothing you can do. Don't be grabbing in your back pocket to try to pay me off. No, there's nothing you can do. I declare you righteous. Tell me in your heart, what does that do for your, um, your pride? What, how does it make you feel? Uh, loved and humbled. Uh, you sense a little bit of a spur of... Uh, uh, if you're going to do that for me, I want, I got to or I want to. This is where it's crucial. Got to or want to. Because grace, one of the things you can tell when it's really happening to you is it's humiliating. <laughs> the more you feel humiliated, the more you know you are experiencing grace. Because you, all these little counter proposals that we come up with, we've got, well, yeah, thank you, but yeah, look what I can do for you now. And now, it's not got to. Grace changes got to because got to is law. Because got to means if I don't, God won't love me, God won't like me, I won't be right. But God's already told us in Christ what? You don't got to do anything. You just have to. What's he told us? Just believe that Christ in your place has made you worthy in the eyes of God. <laughs> that, 
the more you realize that it's like, then there's nothing I can do. There's nothing I can do. But then Christ turns around and says, no, you don't have to do anything. But if you really open your heart to me, I'll put the want to in there. I'll change your heart. I'll make you want to do what I want you to do. Not make, I will inspire you to want to do what I want you to do. Yes. Right here. I honestly believe, and I've studied to the best of that I can, every world religion that exists, there is no other religion in the world that tells human beings that it is purely, absolutely, solely, and only on the grace of God that you are going to be made right with God. Every other religion in the world smuggles some contractual basis in there, a quid pro quo, I will do, God will do this for you if you do this for God, with all kinds of smuggled in obligationisms. And it's so sad, Susan, that because of the overwhelming majority of religious people being that way, when they come into the New Testament perspective, it's so alien and seems so weird that even Christians don't like it. They, it's an amazing thing I've seen over the years. Christians don't like grace. They, they, they want to go back to this uh, record-keeping thing. As soon as they get inside the church and they're told they're going to heaven, then the scoreboard starts all over again and we start counting up, you know, who's doing well and who isn't. It just is evidence that we don't like this posture over here and why don't we like it? Who can see this? We are not in control. God is in control. God is telling you, I declare you righteous. And you look into your own heart and you say, well, I know I'm not, so... Right? When God says that, I declare you righteous, and in your conscience and your heart you say, that can't be right because I'm not worthy. I know I'm not righteous. And God keeps telling us the same thing over and over again, and we don't seem to be hearing. God is saying, look, I'm not asking you to tell me that you're righteous because you feel righteous. I'm asking you to say, I'm righteous because I, God, told you that you were. Now think about that revolution in a person's head. So I can stand here <clears throat> this day and say with full confidence, because, I mean, it's been 42 years of God pounding on me on this. I can absolutely say I have not one shred of confidence in my own uh, standing before the Lord to merit the status of righteousness. It's been stripped out of me. One of the ways is repeated failure. That'll do it every time. <laughs> Thank you for laughing. Everyone else is so stiff to that. Yes, repeated failure will do this for you. Plus, immersion in the New Testament documents themselves, just like Abraham Lincoln did. He went back and immersed himself in the literature of, of what it is that we're supposed to be about, and he came out with the truth. Well, if you immerse yourself in the New Testament literature, this is what it comes to eventually, and, and eventually you just get to the place of, I cannot believe this. You're, you, are, you are telling me that I'm supposed to take your verdict of me instead of my verdict of me. And I can do that. Your verdict of me is I'm righteous. My verdict of me is I am totally sinful. And you want me to step across that line and accept your verdict and get rid of my verdict. Do you understand this, the psychological transfer here? It's an exchange. Yes, judge. 
You need some Advil? <laughs> As always. Uh, it's been helpful for me to think of the being a baby uh, and having this belief that seals through grace and that the rest of it is my struggle with reaching the maturity of my faith. Because I'm not going to reach that maturity. I'm going to struggle with that every day. But it, it was very helpful for me to know that, you know, it, it occurs with that basic. This is the foundation. Yeah. Thank the you. Rest of it's that okay, fine. But I, I'm trying to say lovingly that until we get this down, the rest of the journey is going to be tenfold harder than it will be if you start with the step. Because the rest of the journey, the struggle that you talk about, it is a struggle. But if every time you fall, and every time you make a mistake, and every time you wander, and every realization that you come across that, good grief, being a Christian is like way more complicated and difficult than I thought it was gonna be. If every time that happens to you, you have to look back to make sure that you're really in the family, that God still really loves you, that you're right with God, it's a nightmare. It's an absolute nightmare. And that's why we all start covering up and hiding and doing all the things that we do because we don't have that firm foundation back here that says, no matter how I fail, it, it matters, but Christ eventually is the one that makes me righteous, not me, not my behavior. It's totally liberating. So, yes, sir? And it's so contrary to the way our whole life is. It is... It's total performance. Yeah, it's all performance. Yes. And so that's why some Christian apologists have even argued, this is how you know you have come to the truth. Because if something is true in a world filled with error, it's going to look alien. Why would you think that the truth in a world that, such as we live in would be really uh, compatible with the way our world is. Our world is totally driven. I will estimate you. I will value you. I will accord you honor to the degree that you, sir, have earned it. Not because you're a person made in the image of God, but you show me what you have, and then I'll accord you with certain status. That's the way the world runs. Now, God comes into the picture and says, Oh no, you all flunked and you all failed. So here's my son Christ. I'm going to give his righteousness to you as a gift. And then you're all going to be on the level playing field, on your knees before the cross, all confessing one simple thing. I could not have saved myself. Only Christ can save me. Wow. That's, that's huge. It really is a huge step for people to go through that. Go. Well, understand when you say unconditional that it's only half true. It's maybe unconditional for you, but it wasn't unconditional for the Lord. Because when he died on the cross, your punishment, my punishment, all of our punishment, whatever it is that needed to be punished, if you want to look at it that way, whatever it needed to be rectified, whatever accounts needed to be settled, you can use all the metaphors that you want, but 
the New Testament says that Jesus' death accomplished that. And his resurrection was God's way of saying, okay, that old game is over. You're <laughs> done with the scorekeeping. From now on, it's either you are justified by faith in Jesus or you're not justified. That's what it's from then on. So, yes, but Jesus had to go through that for us. That's, that's a cost was paid. Your debt was paid. Yes. Is it, is it, um, and this is again, my brain is like beyond agile. You need some Percodan or something like that? Or? I don't even know. I'm vacation in Hawaii, so I'm going to I'll take a collection for you. Yeah, what, what has God forgiven you, though? That's the question. Why has God forgiven you? Because Christ came and gave his life. Thank you. That's all you have to believe. And then, I already it, believe that. That's great. It always seems so, how can, I mean, how can that be? Well, no, not just how can that be. How can it not be for the people who are not Christians that have subscribed the name to the Bible or whatnot but feel that Christ life? Well, that'll, be, that'll be another course. I actually do have a course on that, but um, I, I told you we could talk about that. Before you, with, before you go way off and want to make sure everything is all fair for the rest of the world, let me just ask you one question. John 3.16, the very text that we studied. For God so loved what? The world. That he gave his only son. That whoever would believe. God loves everybody in the world. God loves everyone in the world, and Christ died for everyone in the world. So when you're really tormented about that, do what I do, because I'm tormented about it a little bit too. I do worry about the peoples of the world that have never heard of Jesus. And <clears throat> but I stopped worrying about it when I realized, I worry about it a little, but I stopped grieving over it and really worrying about it when I realized God loves them infinitely more than I ever will. And I don't have to question the justice or love or mercy of God in any way because God has already shown me in the person of Christ what God is really like. So if God loves us so much that he would allow Christ to die for us, I don't have to worry about how God's going to extend his love to the rest of the world. He will do it. I know he will do it based on what he's done already. Yes, well now here, let's look at the next one then. I'm gonna, I'm gonna answer your question by what Paul defines. This is his present, future, what he's doing. And 3.12 and 3.13 are the two clear texts. Now I'm gonna read this because of time flipping away and I'm gonna translate it the way I think he really meant it to. Not that I have already obtained this, meaning the state of spiritual maturity. So he denies that he has achieved it. This is interesting. Or am already perfect. Guess what the Greek word is? Remember telos? He's not claiming I am telos. So that means you and I don't have to do it either, which is happy way out of this whole thing. Uh, but I press on. Now, 
what does your text say? Because I'm going to read it out of the Greek and tell you what I think. I press on, or this one thing I do, uh, I, um, my goal is to lay hold of, or take hold of, I'm reading from verse 12, to take hold of or lay hold of that which Christ Jesus laid hold of or apprehended me for. Does that sound close to your translation? My goal in life, Paul says now, is to get hold of the very same reason that Christ got hold of me. I, I need to get hold of somebody. Can I get hold of you? Can I get hold of you? I have a hold of him. He said, Jesus Christ got hold of me. And now what's the, the only goal that he has? Since he doesn't have to make himself right with God by doing anything. He's already right with God. The only thing that he now wants to do is what? Look, look back at the text again. I want to get hold of the same thing that Christ had in mind when he got hold of me. Do you see that? Christ has a reason for getting hold of you. You, have, you might think in your head you understand those reasons. But as the case is often proved, the reason that Jesus gets hold of a person frequently turns out to be so different than what they thought was going to happen at the beginning that it's laughable. So this step involves giving up you have to make an exchange. What do you have to exchange? Uh, to speak the way young people do. Uh, I have to exchange my personal drama. <laughs> What's my personal drama? Yeah, my trip, my life, my stuff, my, what I think I'm all about, my persona, my person, my status. Now, I think I have a hold of that, but he's saying what? No, I don't, want, I don't care about that anymore, my personal drama. I want to get hold of Christ drama. I want, to, I want Christ to get, Christ has already gotten hold of me. I want to get hold of him so that the reason he got hold of me now comes through me. Now, isn't that the coolest thing in the world? Notice, it's not defined. Does that mean that a really spiritual, mature person is going to become a pastor? Because that's the fleshly way we look at it, right? Yes, Roger. It could, le it could mean living simply. It could mean living su uh, su experiencing suffering. I told you once before, I remember to this day the chapel talk you gave at Malone. It was 1989 or 90. You gave the chapel talk at Malone College from Philippians. Do you remember the text you used? <laughs> it was awesome. I'll never forget it. It has been accounted unto you or has been given unto you uh, that believe in Jesus that you will also suffer on his behalf. You spoke that. You gave that sermon. Now, who wants to believe that? Now, see, your, your life did have meaning. You, you stuck something in my head. Your life did have meaning. You put something in my head that's still there. 
that it could very well be that Christ apprehended you for a reason that will lead you to experience suffering. Okay. Paul would say what? 310. I want to know him. And what else? This is my goal in life. I want to know him and the power of his resurrection. And I want to share in his sufferings that I might be made conformable to his death. So if that happens, what are you exchanging? You're exchanging your little personal drama for Christ's drama. And if this person loves you that much that they die for you, then if you get to experience co-crucifixion with that person, if you get to experience their resurrection, if you get to experience them, Christ himself, then what could you ever want better? I'm using Lincoln's logic here. If you want to go to heaven to be with Jesus in the first place, then Paul is simply saying, just shorten up the, this long process. Just surrender yourself to him completely and say, whatever it is that you apprehended me for, whatever that is, whatever it cost, then I want you to do that. I give myself to you for that end. Now, Sue Ellen, that's even scarier. Because it's scary to be told at the beginning, hey, there's nothing you can do, just accept my righteousness. Now here, he's telling you, yeah, you know what, all that little stuff that you got floating around in your head about your personal drama and everything, what you think your life's all about, what you think the meaning and purpose of life is, why don't you just give that all over to me and let me put inside of you, in your head, why I apprehended you. And then you and I will agree on that, and that's the way we'll live out the rest of our lives. No scorekeeping, no bookkeeping, just a total Christocentric life. Now, that's the definition of spiritual maturity in the New Testament. Does it involve um, falling away and going down and losing your Christocentric focus? Absolutely. <clears throat> but at the end of the text, notice what he says. And I'll leave you with this. Verse 15. Let those of us who are telos or whatever you want to call it, stumbling or progressing towards maturity. Let us think this way. And if anything else you think otherwise, God will reveal this to you also. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Now, what do you think that means? If you're mature, this is the way you should think. If you're not mature, if you're thinking some other way, what does he say God will do for you? God will show you. That's scary, Sue Ellen. And I'm going to leave here today, and I'm going to drive home. I'm going to say, okay, God, I'm obligated now to say what? Because I taught this. If there's anything in my life that isn't congruent with pursuing Christ completely, then I have to do what? Say, Jesus, let your apprehension take over and fill mine. This making sense to you what it is? Then he says what? Not, you're not always going to see it real clear, but God will reveal it to you. And then you have to choose whether you want to keep going or not. So I hope this is helpful, um, and I thank you for studying with me, and I wish you, wish you the fastest progression into maturity that you and I can make. That's the best way to live according to the New Testament. Okay, God bless you. Thank you. <clears throat>
If I can get just a minute of your time, let me make a couple quick announcements. Too quickly we have come to the end of John's six-week course. In a minute I want to speak a little bit more about John. Next Sunday we have a unique opportunity in this class. Coach Kevin Henderson, the head football coach at Timken High School, will be with us for one Sunday. Most of you may know we have a relationship with with Coach Henderson and his football team. We've been providing pre-game meals through the good offices of this church for his team, for, for their games this year. Uh, Jim Camp and, and a team of people have been doing that uh, this season. I'm not sure about previous seasons, but I've met Coach Henderson and I asked him a month ago if he would come and just talk to the class about his journey about his team, about the curriculum that he teaches. He's a graduate of Timken High School. Uh, and so I think it's an opportunity for us to get to know him in a different way. Following that, we're going to have the four Sundays of Advent. And Pastor DeVries asked the committee that kind of oversees the program of this class last spring. He said, I have an idea for a four-week series during Advent. Can I do that for your class? And he, he asked us if we, could, if, if we would let him do this. He wants to teach on the theology of the iconic movie that we see around the Christmas season, It's a Wonderful Life, that movie that was made, I think, in the late 40s starring Jimmy Stewart. And it is a movie that, that will display some pretty profound elements of theology, I think. And so we're going to have four weeks on that. Most of the season after January 1st is pretty well filled up. We've got, I think, three open dates, and we'll obviously publicize all of what's going to go on in our, in our spring semester. But John is going off to Thailand in the middle of, Ju of Ju January for several months on a, on a teaching ministry over there. He's been invited to go over. Maybe we'll hear more about this when he comes back. But the first Sunday of May, John has agreed to do another six-week series. So he'll take us into our summer break into the middle of June. So keep John in your thoughts and prayers over this time when he's going to be away. And we look forward, John, to having you back first Sunday of May. Thank you. Have a great Thanksgiving, everybody.